Hello and welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner, and we currently deliver one million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This episode looks back over our remarkable second series, packed with fascinating personal experiences and words of wisdom from our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening. In episode one, I had the pleasure of speaking to Tom Valentine, co-founder and managing director of the incredibly successful Secret Escapes. Here he discusses how his entrepreneurial mother shaped his thinking and influenced his own career path. My mum and I were like such a tight little gang that I just simply, even when I got to university, I didn't really understand that everybody's work life wasn't like my mother's. So she launched, um, you might you might have, well, you've probably been to quite a few and many of your listeners have, but she launched uh, the first facility for viewing focus groups, uh, those things with the two-way mm. mirrors in the UK. So she used to do the research and then she started uh, kind of kind of verticalizing, I'd say. So she did uh, did the research, but also owned the facility. And at the end of her career, she was simply running the facility and then sold it to the big American player. And so, you know, our dinnertime conversations were an awful lot about whatever the day's crisis was. And, you know, she, she had a, a very weird relationship with the central London landlord and kind of uh, you know, she, I wouldn't say she'd describe herself as a natural technologist and there's all sorts of recording equipment going on. And, and so, you know, I never really internalized, and I guess probably still haven't, this concept of being an employee. Working was running a business uh, as best I understood it. And, you know, over the, the years afterwards, I think I managed to kind of rationalize the difference. But, you know, l- looking back and, you know, my career was over large swathes of it, pretty unplanned. But it's very easy to post-rationalize it. And I kind of do look back to that upbringing with my mum running her business as kind of basically setting in stone what I was likely to end up doing. In this clip, Tom tells the amazing story of how Secret Escapes first came to be, a venture he started with co-founder Alex Saint. I was working at a holding company that owned a couple of online marketplaces in the deal space. So they owned a company called Kudos, which was effectively like a secret escapes, but for fashion. And also they had a similar business model, but in B2B for technology. So where did Dixon sell a plasma screen when it's not the new model anymore or something like that? And so I was running these deal businesses And I met Alex, who at the time was running a Skyscanner competitor. And we had a great conversation and he was trying to work out whether Groupon for luxury travel, uh, because at the time, Groupon was the most exciting business on the planet, uh, could work in the UK. 
I was effectively running Groupon for fashion at the time. And that was an amazing business on the consumer side because you could start to see one of the things that I really love about Secret Escapes happening, where you're curating a group of customers who are really into a, an area of e-commerce, in, in that case, fashion, and get really excited about uh, being talked to every day about what the best deals in that space are. And uh, I could see that side of the business working, but the supply acquisition on that marketplace was really, really tough because you were effectively trying to find stuff that hadn't sold well in the stores. And there was a question about uh, why it hadn't sold well in the stores. You know, was it unfashionable or unsuitable for some reason or other? So it, it seemed pretty clear we wouldn't be able to make uh, the supply side of that business work sustainably. Uh, but then we got to thinking about the equivalent for hotels and it became clear that the supply side of that business was much more suited to the model because instead of selling stuff that can't sell in the shops or whatever it happens to be, in hotels, you're enabling them to manage their pricing and their price elasticity much more effectively. So, you know, in any given hotel, uh, and I, I'm, I'm worried I'm veering into the pitch here, so I'll be quick. But any given hotel uh, tends to sell, I don't know, 70, 80% of its rooms at the price you see on booking.com or something. And those are people that know exactly what hotel they want to go to and what date they want to go to. And their concern is that if they load their price to sell 100% on booking.com, they'd miss out on potential profit. So what we do is we take that other 20 or 30% and we sell it to people that weren't planning the holiday that day. And that seemed like a good hypothesis you could test in the first six months of launching Secret Escapes. And if it were true, uh, the hotels would see they were selling those rooms but not cannibalizing their booking.com trade. And the customers would tell you that they were excited to have been sold a holiday in a place they weren't specifically planning. And coming back to the science, uh, the science was that seems like a pretty testable hypothesis. And the gut or the passion was, it felt like it was quite likely to be true as well. And that was enough, I think, for the, the two of us to get incredibly excited about launching Secret Escapes which we then did at the back end of 2010. Scaling a business has required Tom to adapt his leadership style and to establish a strong sense of culture and ownership within his team. He gives valuable insight into how he achieved this and how his leadership methods have changed over the years. You know, when I started working at Secret Escapes, you've done it too, it's absolutely terrifying because you know I was I was lucky enough to begin the founding stage of my career with a bunch of skills, and so I you know I you know kind of I had had a, a vague sense of how to design a website and run the marketing and run a supply team, but uh, you really were solving twenty or thirty problems a day and problems would feel, if not solved, resolved over the course of a day. And 
There was very little debate around which actions to take. There was just a huge list of pretty obviously necessary tasks and you pounded through them. And two or three years after that, you know, you take a breath and realize that you're, you know, actually pretty good at existing in that environment. And you've built a team of you know, 50, 100 people around you who can absolutely move mountains and make things happen in days. And then you look at your business plan, uh, which, as you say, kind of points to, uh, you know, eventually having a thousand people in the organization. And, you know, I, I'd like to pretend that I kind of looked at that and realized, well, quite obviously, I'm going to have to learn how to delegate and step back. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't do that. What I did is worked as if we had a 50 person team for maybe a year longer than I really should have, should have, and realized we just weren't the executional business we needed to be for our weight class. And then at that point realized that even though I felt qualified for the job I've been doing, it was now a very, very different job. And, you know, that's the scale up phase and that's building a team that can execute, but execute all the way through the organization where, you know, you don't need founder fairy dust sprinkled on a project to make it happen, come up with their own list of things that must be done, but also share them across the business and join in productive discussions when you get good about it, about what the one or two things you need to be truly excellent at to move the business in the direction it needs to move in have to be and get the whole team supporting those either directly because they're working on those projects or indirectly by freeing up resource so those projects can be worked on. Tom is an absolutely inspirational character and I really admire his candor and humility. My next guest was Callum, founder and CEO of the tech-driven experience platform Pollen. His drive, determination and self-belief are truly impressive and I really enjoyed our conversation. In this clip, Callum talks about the beginnings and the evolution of Pollen, as well as scaling and professionalizing the business and the journey he has been on. In terms of what Pollen is today, so we're building a marketplace that has all the best experiences in one place, um, very much mainly focused on 18 to 30 year olds at the moment. And so, you know, whether you want to go, tra you know, on a travel destination, you want to go to a sport event, um, a festival, um, you can find all of those experiences on our platform. We think the future of uh, the experience space is about owning the content But, but also owning like customer centric discovery. So like the way you distribute that content. Um, and so that's now what we're really, really interested in. So although we sell lots of third party experiences, um, a lot of our business now is selling our own experiences that we've developed in house, although mm. we use other people to, to execute those experiences. And then, yeah, and then in general, we're, we're not just thinking, let's have every festival in the world or let's have every nightclub in the world on the platform. We think about the audiences that we have and think, okay, based on this persona, what are the types of experiences that will appeal to them? And, and we build the content around the audience, you know, rather than the other way around. Uh, so that's Pollen today. Um, yeah, in terms of the evolution, I mean, we, we, we basically went from uh, selling other people's festival tickets um, and products for, with physical vouchers and cash 
to a SaaS product that, that allowed us to do that um, in, a, in a more scalable way. And then when we got enough scale, we, we flipped to the marketplace. But at this point, this was mainly in music. We then expanded into travel and restaurants and sport. Um, and then, yeah, then made that jump to creating our own content as well as um, as well as just selling other people's. And and yeah, when I when I say the content, I mean the the experiences themselves. And so over time, you had to like build entirely new capabilities. You know, you had to figure out how to create the content. How did you go about building an organization that doesn't just depend on Liam and you, but actually, you know, got professionalized massively? I think you've got what like three hundred ish people today um so talk me about like the journeys in terms of you know people and professionalization there are like two things that really stand out in terms of how to do that um at least from at least from from our perspective so i, I there's some people always say like in, I, I like to simplify it right like the role of an entrepreneur is to have a strong point of view on the world and convince everybody else you're right um but if you yeah, if, that's a good summary but if you, yeah but if you take that view um for, for us i think what really allowed us to step change our growth was bringing in amazing people around us and i think you know over the years we've got better and better at hiring and attracting great people um and and then also setting those people up for success within the organization so um that you know that that was definitely one i i think the other area which I know it's something you you think about the whole time and have talked about the whole time but sort of institutionalizing knowledge and You know, de definitely what we're finding is the big difference from going from like zero to a hundred million in sales than a hundred to a billion dollars in sales is the need to build like everything needs to be a repeatable machine. You know, it needs to be an engine so that there's got to be a playbook that's constantly being iterated and improved that, you know, other people can pick up and learn and, and all the rest. So you've got to make the investments and capturing those learnings and And in some ways, right, those data points, those facts that you prove that that becomes that's a huge part of your value proposition and your differentiation. You know, it's your business IP and, and then training people to use that information in the right way, not just to follow that information, but to continue to build on it and, and help it evolve. He then went on to talk openly about how he has established a thriving culture and what he believes motivates his team and drives their success. So I've I've always believed that the the best people love what they do, you know, or at least want to go on a journey to discover what it is that they love. So so that was the thing that really inspired the culture for me. You know, if I think about inspirations for that, you know, de definitely the fact that school didn't work out for me gave me a real interest in like the, the recognizing that learning is different and like how do you create an environment where everybody can discover what they love, can, you know, can be passionate, can have drive. I, I was also like a bit of a pro gamer at the same time as being at school. And, you know, Amazing. I just, I guess I remember thinking, you know, fuck, like I can spend 15 hours a day gaming and no, no one's got to pay me to do that. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but I definitely don't enjoy <laughs> going to school. So um, I think that was one of the early inspirations for our culture. I, I think then, As, as we got into it more, I think, I think also like, you know, the minute I set up my own company, I was running it. I, I went from being like the least motivated person I know to the most motivated person I know. So thinking about what, you know, what led to that and what was different in the role I was doing and how I could create an environment that allowed people to feel, feel that as well. So I think that, that was some of the early, the early thinking. Um, I got very inspired by this book called Drive by Daniel Pink, where he talks a lot about mm -hmm. the drivers of intrinsic motivation, flow, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, what, what we ended up with was we wanted to create an environment which, uh, which helps people discover what they really love and then allows them to thrive. 
and we have a few different pillars to that. So freedom and ownership being one, mastery being another, and community being the third. So in terms of freedom and ownership, we don't have hours. Um, uh, meetings are, you know, you attend the meetings that you think are useful to you or, or useful to somebody else. You take as much holiday as you need everything's about you can work from anywhere you want in the world like everything's about kpis um so it's all it's basically whatever enables you and your team to deliver the best results and everything else is up to you um so that that's been a huge part of our culture one of the changes we actually made over time is originally it was work in the way that enables you to deliver the best results but we changed it to you and your team as we got to a bit more scale um just basically realizing that so you know you, you can democratize responsibilities to teams about the way they work, but obviously there's so much collaboration required in, in the kind of companies that we're, that, that we're building, you're building, that um, you, know, you can't have somebody deciding that they're going to work from 10 p.m. till 6 in the morning because it's the way they like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've, they've got to obviously take their teammates into account. Um, so the second is mastery. Like I, I'm, I'm basically a big believer in, you know, like playing a role of a company. Like we say, we want people to leave 10 times better than they joined. Um, and, and for us, we think that's all about helping them discover the overlap between what they love and what they're great at. And then going on a journey to, to master that thing. So we invest very heavily in coaching, like, um, you know, self-awareness. A lot of it's also just about creating the space to have those kind of conversations like, you know, managers and their teams talking about what gives you energy, what takes it away, you know, where, where are you at your happiness? Like what makes you uncomfortable? Like just means that people are, you know, they constantly have this on their mind. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's key. Like we've, we've got a coaching department, which is pretty unusual for a, for a company of our scale. And then in terms of uh, community, you know, I, th- I think like our whole history was in rave, you know, it was definitely something that was a bit of an inspiration for me in the early days, or at least something that um, was a big part of my life. And, you know, rave was all about like, it doesn't matter, like, you know, how you dress, there's no judgments, you know, where you're from. It's about, you know, it's about being your authentic self and like being the best version of yourself and being true to yourself and that kind of thing. And I mean, that was definitely something which was important to me when I was younger. And so, you know, of course, we're in the experience space. So, we've always invested in this idea of bringing people together and creating a community where everyone feels like they belong. And, and so that, that was uh, both, both from the perspective of just feeling part of a community and like enjoying working with your peers and all the rest, but also being able to bring your authentic self to work and like, and not having to hide parts of who you are. Cullum really believes in both his product and the people around him, which makes him such an inspirational and positive leader. In episode three, I spoke with the amazingly talented Charmadine Reed, the founder of Beauty Stack and War London, as well as a passionate advocate for women's empowerment. Here she discusses what shaped her future and how media and culture played a huge part in her business ambitions. I have been curious about business from a really, really, really young age. I firstly through the medium of products and media, if I'm honest. So, for example, I remember being five years old and getting cable TV for the first time. I remember, you know, a really gorgeous black sky box Mm -hmm. with like red lettering, like super 80s, 90s, and like red, you know, digital lettering. And I remember thinking, this company has changed my life. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I wasn't 
wasn't like thinking that sky magically dropped from the sky. I was thinking, wow, like cable, this is insane. You know, there were literally like not hundreds, but definitely more than three or four channels that were on terrestrial TV at the time. And I actually learned a lot more about American culture through cable. And obviously America is very much like American dream. You can make it rags to riches, <laughs> like hustler. Whereas British culture was the opposite. It was like, stay in your lane. Don't get above your station. <laughs> Who do you think you are? So I grew up from age five watching Oprah who was one of the biggest influences on me, uh, you know, as a, as a young girl, because I remember seeing the credits to her chat show and she was dragging along the word Harpo and it said Harpo Productions, which is Oprah backwards. And I remember oh. thinking she owns that company. Like she owns the company. That's amazing. So you know, a combination of watching American movies and TV, chat show hosts, MTV and like VH1 and just seeing constant culture, commerce, products, medium and then buying magazines. I was just really always looking for the stories of business and ownership, but within culture. You know, it wasn't like I was never reading about, for example, like someone like Richard Branson not until I was much later, like older. When I was younger, I was looking at culture, like ownership through culture. And that was like hugely influential to me. As someone who possesses a real love of technology, Shamadeen has really embraced that passion and used it to create amazing products and services. She talks in this clip about how coupling that passion with a strong sense of conviction has led her to huge success. So I've always been a tech person. I've always been obsessed in the same way that I was obsessed with my cable box. I've always been curious about like technology and media, etc. And I went to a really super techie school. It was a city technology college and every child had a laptop from age 11 and you'd have typing lessons and business lessons. Like I'd have a three hour business lesson every week from age 11 till 16 You know, I've had my same Hotmail address, which they helped me set up in 1997 or eight oh. or something. So, you know, even though it wasn't at the forefront of my kind of personal brand, technology was a great driver for me. And I also taught myself InDesign and Photoshop when I was like 19. So I was very much like that kind of person who could easily like start a blog or create a channel or do you know do something digitally media based but in that 18 months what I had to learn was more like the history of high technology and of startups and I just devoured every book and podcast and you know got plenty more time in Wolverhampton so I essentially gave myself <laughs> like a mini MBA It's, it's the same kind of spirit of when I was growing up. No one told me that I couldn't be anything or do anything right. When I was starting WAR, people, the interviewers and journalists used to ask me, what's it like to start a business? And then later on, when feminism became cool, they used to say, what's it like to be a woman in business? Right. And then later on, when race became an issue, they would say, what's it like to be a black woman in business? And the difference is, is that, I'd never, ever asked myself those questions. Mm. So I hadn't even considered the limitations before. So when I moved to London, I was very confident and sure that I had a unique role in beauty booking marketplaces. 
um, not marketplace actually I'll tell you about that but in beauty booking which I thought that I had a different perspective on because I'd actually run a, a beauty business so what I did was when I moved back to London I would go to Google campus every week I would be on meetup.com all the time I would go to like random places like for example I remember going to a talk in Smithfield Market in East Poultry about computer vision and I would just go and listen and I did that for about two years I would go to talks on like AI bots computer vision you know pitch nights and demo nights and I would just went and I would always be by myself by the way I would go by myself and I'd be the fashion girl black fashion girl in the back of the room that looked completely different and I didn't really network I would just go and get my information and then leave and from doing that I just kept thinking I can do this if that if that dude can do it I can do it (laughs) so then I knew this is probably less relevant but also possibly interesting to any of your listeners who feel that they don't look and look like you know a typical founder like what I would do is I decided that to move myself from a beauty business a beauty founder to a tech founder I would have to help people understand what I'm trying to do through a series of small projects about driving beauty forward with tech So I actually did two small things. Firstly, I did, I worked with a company that had just launched, actually. I was like one of their pilot customers, where together we built a really amazing chatbot for booking beauty. So you could text a number and it was plugged in to our booking systems API. And you could basically have a little chatbot, you know, book your appointment for you. And it worked incredibly well. The second thing I did was I built a VR experience where you tried on nail designs um, before you got them. And this is because at the time everyone was obsessed with VR, but it was always like shooting games or golf or whatever. And I was like, if more girls are in technology, we'll have a more wider range of tech experiences. So I built this VR thing. And what those two projects did was help people understand that I understood technology and I understood how to build products. And then when I did my pitch for beauty stack, my initial thesis was that I truly believed that women would have a higher conversion to book from an image rather than a string of text in a networked environment rather than a flat directory. Like, Mm you know all all beauty booking systems right now are flat directories they are they're marketplaces but like flat so like if i booked a haircut you would never know about it you couldn't follow my profile there's no concept of usernames there's no concept of liking commenting you know the the marketplaces of the past are very much like here's a list here are reviews here's how you sort them but they're not like networked effect which is here's a girl in your network who's been to this salon. Why don't you look at her picture of her finished result and then use that information to make your next booking decision? And that's what I thought. So my two, the two points of difference for beauty stack is we're completely visual. You have to click a picture and book it. Second thing is, is it's networked. So we take social mechanics 
you know, as I said, the con like even the fact is most booking systems don't give you like a username and you've got, if I go to booking.com, I can't see all the hotels in Prague that my friends have stayed at, for example, which would mm -hmm. edge me further towards booking something immediately because there's the trust element. So that's what I wanted to bring. It's like social mechanics, peer group recommendations and visual in the booking environment. And I do believe in the future, it will be applied to travel, to food, to everything else. It's like, my friends have all done this. They rated it high. So I automatically am going to rate it high. The thoughtful and inspiring conversations continued throughout the series. In episode four, I spoke to Huel CEO, James McMaster, about his upbringing, influences and career to date. Here, he discusses how scaling the business and his team presents various challenges and how he uses those to learn and develop. You definitely need more people with the right experience the bigger you get to handle the complexity. It just, it just works that way. But sometimes you can make mistakes doing that. I, I think I've been through different experiences and intuition. I think we've done a good job in very, making very few mistakes. But I remember hearing about Brewdog, if you if you heard that story, where I think the guy said they brought in six new people who are sort of bigwigs to kind of run run the company and pretty much all of them left within 12 months. Mm. So you can get it horribly wrong. And I think the way I look at it is... When you are in a scale phase business, you have to be both the builder and the architect. If you come in and you're in a larger company and you're the architect sort of really high up in the sky looking down on things, it doesn't work because there's so much heavy lifting still to do when the business is only five years old like we are. And the best people who've joined us have been those who can roll their sleeves up. And we, we've got a phrase at Huel, which is we muck in together. So you've got to muck in together, but you've also got to add new ideas, strategy, thinking, experience that can make you a bigger business. I spend a lot, a lot of time personally on recruitment. Like I, I scour LinkedIn a lot and look at individuals and sort of mentally headhunt them. And quite a few people that we've hired into both the senior team and, and other people in the business have come through either myself or someone else, or Julian's really good at it as well. Um, using LinkedIn as our friend. And, and that, I think that's, I, I over-index on all things people in the business, particularly recruitment and onboarding, because it's, it's the single largest driver about our future success. He goes on to talk about his inspirations and motivators, as well as what helps him to think strategically and improve his own output. Yeah, do you know what? Some of my the be best ideas, and particularly thinking strategically, are when I'm on a flight or in the shower or driving to work and not at, not at a laptop or <laughs> at a desk. And, it, and it's quite, I've looked into it before. There's scientific reasons as to why that happens. Like I was driving home recently from the office and rang Rebecca, our, our head of people, and had like five thoughts in my head. And I didn't have them before I started the car, car journey. So that works for me. I think we are, are bored again, fantastic at, at bouncing off strategic ideas. I absolutely love podcasts and in normal times I'm, I'm in the car about an hour and a half a day. So I managed to get sort of two to three podcasts in listening at sort of one and a half times speed. And that's as good, if not better as books. I, I, I learn a lot from other businesses and different stories and listen to a lot of your, your podcasts and, and others in it. That's huge. I think I'm also just the world I'm in and the type of person I am, I've, I've just got friendly with a lot of people in a similar role or, or different businesses where you kind of ring each other up and ask favors and learn from what they do. They learn from what, from what you do. So I think when we're, we're quite similar team and we're quite 
young running businesses and therefore you probably have to be a bit more uh, open-minded and listen to others more rather than being sort of a, a traditional alpha male CEO of the past. So I'm, I'm massively into asking for advice and we do a team server every, every six months to our team here. A lot of it sort of points that are directed at me individually or, or the wider team that I'm responsible for both and do some coaching and do some 360 surveys sometimes. So I'm a very growth mindset person. Um, came across Carol Dweck uh, years ago as a yeah of course sort of stuck with me right and i think i was a bit more fixed mindset then so that was a bit of a penny dropping moment for me to be humble listen learn and know that you can always be better his advice on how to lead to the very best of your ability as well as using feedback and customer focus as tools for retaining focus and great business practices are so incredibly insightful When it's in the in the scale phase and a growth phase, it changes so much in terms of the business and the world around you. And I think we've all got the ability to have our blinkers on and not understand and be very self-aware. So I I spend a lot of time asking for feedback and I will sit with individuals or with groups. And every single time I sit with someone, I learn something new and it changes my mind on something. So I think I, I try and over-index on keeping nimble. We talk about being a speedboat, not an oil tanker. And to do that, I've got to understand what do our team think? What do our customers think? So I probably spend about half an hour every day going through our forum on our site, Twitter, Instagram, emails from customers. What are people saying about us and what are our teams? So we use the word hooligan. So hooligan is someone who either works at hooligan. Love it. Or they're That's a customer. Great. And I think yeah. if I just if I focus on those two daily, what, what's our Hooligan customer saying and what's our Hooligan employee saying, then I think I'll do a good job. James is a fantastic leader and such a humble guy. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And no doubt he will succeed at whatever he does in life. In episode five, I spoke to Paula McKenzie, the managing director of KFC in the UK. In this clip, Paula talks about why she believes the company is so successful at retaining its employees, as well as the reasons she has been a part of the business for a decade. When I first joined, and people, when they introduce themselves, typically say, like, how long they've been at Yum, and, and you know, it'd be 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I actually, what was going through my mind was, what is wrong with these people? This is insane. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with them, why they never move companies. Um, and also all I could think about was, these sound like prison sentences type durations. <laughs> what, what <is laughs> and, and now I'm here at 10 years. I never wake up and feel like net net, I'd rather work anywhere else. I enjoy my job. There's intellectual stretch. There's things to be done. It's very rewarding. I'm empowered. I can see the results, the, the results of things we change. I love the people I work with. And, and you build that over time. I think there's something interesting about the complexity of our business that actually the years of experience that you get over time become invaluable to you. So in a way, and actually we put science to this because I know you'll love a bit of science. We actually could prove in maths that an RGM, a store manager, a restaurant general manager was their most effective at four years plus that almost the, the amount they had therefore understood about their restaurant 
assimilated, built the team, et cetera, et cetera, um, they, would, they would get better results out of their restaurant for almost four years of continuity in it. Wow, I love so that. I guess that's then just magnified as a leader ultimately, which is, you know, and I've done many roles. I don't want people to think that, okay, she's done 10 years in the same thing, but I, I joined a supply chain director. I then moved to become chief development officer. After a year or so, I joined CFO. I became the joint CFO and development director for about another two years. I did a year where I didn't have the development responsibility, but I was the CFO and the chief marketing officer for a year. And then long story short, off the back of that in 2017, I got made the general manager. So, you know, it's it's those five experiences that ladder up to having a really decent understanding of the business. And our business, I always think of it in three, in three balls, so to speak. So there's the brand. And most people who come from an FMCG background understand brands really quite well. But the second ball or second bubble is operations, running restaurants. Not many businesses. You'll have a supply chain, but you won't actually run outlets and premises in the same way. And, and honestly, that is so complicated in a different way. And then the third bubble that, um, again, you might be running restaurants, but you won't have this one is our business model, which is franchisor, franchisee, that relationship. And so you can see intellectually or you know, improving something, there's always something across brand, operations, running restaurants, and then the business model that needs working on or improving. And sometimes I just think, my goodness, what was I busy doing in FMCG? <laughs> um, you know, if you're just running a restaurant, you know, you don't have franchisees, franchisor relationships as well. Like, what are you busy doing? But it's it's the combination of all three that is powerful, I think. Business can present huge challenges. Here, Paula discusses how she managed to turn KFC's fortunes around during crisis whilst maintaining focus and positivity, as well as the valuable lessons she's learned from these experiences. And it just comes from grit and resilience and hard work and seizing opportunities and being the people and the team that you are and speaking from the heart and you know and all those wonderful comms that we put out and the one that we're most famous for you know that that fck bucket and it comes from a place of genius you you know if you can if you can harness the whether it's the grit and the oyster or the, the the moments of brilliance that come out of these things because sometimes you need that rub to create you know to strike the match against or to uh, that, that it just creates people's absolute best work, which is why you try as a leader, sometimes they say like, you know, crisis like collaboration or, you know, to force the sense of this. I mean, my God, you would never force it in the sense of how real that was. But when those things come through, that is that is the team and their talent and the brilliance and the authenticity handling a crisis. And I think that's what consumers connected with, which is we put out comms saying, this isn't great. Like, you know, we've stuffed up or we'll be back when, you know, it's essentially we're, we're coming back. You know, everything has to be bob on in terms of tonality, et cetera. But when you do that, your customers and your loyalists, they see what, you know, they see you speaking as the brand, which is the brand they know and love. And they're like, that is genius. You know, that piece of work was creative genius with the right tonality. And then, and then we've, you know, we've just kept building And you just take the learnings and actually the success we've had in 2020. So who would have known, you know, if you'd have told me that Paula, those learnings that you learn as an organization, as a business, and as a leader yourself in 2018, it meant the silver lining was when a version of that happens in 2020, I was, you know, all of us were just like, well, we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing better than anyone. <laughs> we know that we can close a thousand stores and we can open them again. And we will do this faster, hopefully better, more considered than anyone else because we have this in our muscle memory. So I think maybe the learning is for crises, 
never underestimate the learning experience and when you're going to be able to use those skills again. <laughs> Paula is such an impressive leader and I really appreciate her candor and upbeat attitude. Tim Mason was my guest for episode six. Tim is the CEO of loyalty tech company Eagle Eye and ex-deputy CEO of Tesco. In this clip, Tim explains how putting the customer at the center of business kept Tesco at the forefront of its sector and successfully fended off competition. In that business, in the grocery business, I don't know whether other industries work like this, but where people basically can swap between the brands with relative ease, what you, you know, the, the key hallmark of success is how much better you are this year than last year. And furthermore, you, um, what you want to do is you, you want to make sure that you're better at a faster rate than your competition. So the best of all worlds is where you're getting better in a year and actually one, one or more of your competitors are getting worse. And if you can get that going on, then you really can clean up in terms of volume growth. The big thing was about putting the customer at the center of organ the organization. We created a thing called customer panels where everybody from the board downwards would go out, 15 customers, would be invited to come and talk about shopping in the Kensington Tesco and what they liked about it and what they didn't like about it. And the manager would, would run the session. Some of his staff would be there. He'd have some support from people from the office. And basically what you end to do from that was you ended up with, with three lists. You ended up a list with a list of things that the store manager could fix there's too much litter, there's queues on a Friday, whatever. You ended up with a list that the business could fix. There's a blind spot in the car park, the fridges leak and put water on the floor, you know, whatever. And then there were some key strategic issues like you're too expensive, your meat's tough, whatever, that needed to go away and be worked on. And we tried to create these, these three lists. But the, the important part about it was that this was no longer moderated research in books. This was hearing it straight from the customer. Tim goes on to talk about the power of great concept, kindly using Gusto as an example of how good ideas can be transformed into a successful business model. Don't underestimate the quality of the idea that you have as a business and the attractiveness and the fit of that idea. One of the great sadnesses about Fresh and Easy was that it was in many ways a model business. And if it had been very successful, people would have been more thoughtful about the, their environmental impact. They'd been more thoughtful about how they served consumers. And they would have certainly been more thoughtful about how they recruited and managed their staff, all of which would have been incredibly good for society. So I, I honestly believe that it was a very well-run and a very attractive business. The trouble is the core idea just wasn't good enough. It wasn't different enough. What you've got with, with your business is Gusto is a brilliantly good idea. 
people want to be able to cook. Uh, they want to be able to create. And what you do is you make it easy for them to do it well. And they get a tremendous feeling of satisfaction out of that, much more satisfaction than they do from popping an M&S or a Tesco ready meal in a microwave. I think it's really tapped into something that people want to do. One of the reasons that, that people you know, get fed up with cooking is because they only cook the same four things. And the reason, it's not that they're not capable of cooking more things, they just don't have the headspace to have the larder properly stocked with the smoked turmeric and all the other things that you serve up amazingly in your recipe boxes, which means that food tastes different, all their food tastes the same. And everybody just gets a bit, a bit bored and a bit fed up with it. And you've completely unlocked that. So I think it's a brilliant idea. And then I think it is a very well-run business. I really enjoyed my chat with Tim and find his business mind really fascinating. My next guest in episode seven was Barclays chair, Nigel Higgins. He provided some really interesting insights, including his secret sauce to longevity, as discussed here. Um, what's the secret sauce? I mean, the secret sauce to longevity, a lot of it is, is luck. I mean, I remember that when I left university, I, was, I think I was only offered three jobs. Uh, one was for what was then a probably more prestigious UK merchant bank called Hill Samuel, which disappeared shortly afterwards into the arms, I think, of either Lloyds Bank or the TSB. And then the only other job I was offered was Arthur Anderson, which in many ways was the <laughs> interesting uh, dynamic challenger in the accountancy field. And for whatever reason, I think it was my father who told me to take Rothschilds because you never know what happens, but at least people have heard of this. I think it was probably his advice. But that was just phenomenal luck because it's the one that was still around 10 and actually now 40 years, 40 years later. Um, we'll talk more about culture in a, in, in a moment, but I think one should never discount the role of, of, of accident in history. Nigel talks openly throughout the entire episode about the role of luck during his career. In this clip, he talks about how he broadened his leadership capabilities as the business grew. You know, I never underestimate the role of, of luck in all of this. I mean, there's, um, I think it's in the Weekend FT, they have a kind of one-page regular question interview with Uh, people and I think there's a question about people's career which is something like hard work or talent uh, and I just think it's the wrong question because luck and I've mentioned this already comes in um, you know I was lucky if that's the right word not everybody wants to do this of course but I was lucky in that an opening appeared uh, in the late 1990s a lot of my senior sort of friends and colleagues at Rothschild you know, stopped wanting to or being able to run things. And there was a need, uh, which wasn't filled just by me, but by a group of us to pick up, pick up the various batons. And then I think that that coincided with a time in 
global investment banking where an increasing amount of business uh, was cross-border. People were starting to think about emerging markets. The, the, the BRICS expression was being, being invented. And as soon as you think internationally, muddling along with a, a domestic franchise, which frankly, you, you know, you can manage, you know, in a relatively amateurish way perfectly well, you are catapulted into a requirement for a more systematic approach to, to, to management, whether that's around structures or finances, talent, but you know, above all leading to cross-border cooperation. And that doesn't just happen, doesn't just happen through the goodness of people's hearts. It needs some sort of management. So I would say that the, the opportunity arose just as the opportunity and the requirement got really quite big. And you know, I was lucky enough to be running, I suppose, the largest office uh, in the kind of Rothschild Federation. And we, we, we took a lead in trying to pull things together internationally, which is, which is what then happened over the following you know, 10, or 15, 10 or 15 years. He carries on to define the qualities of great leaders and how they encourage motivation and inspiration within their teams. The best definition I've ever heard of leadership came from one of my colleagues who, who said that, you know that you're a leader if you turn around and you can see that people are following you. And it's a really good general description. Now, people might be following you because you're brilliant and strategic, because you're charismatic, because you are incredibly hardworking, because you're on top of all of the operational detail that is necessary. People, there are different reasons why people are great leaders and what they are held up to be leaders for. But I think the common ingredient is that people want to follow them and work with them. And that plays straight back to what we've already been talking about. There's no such thing as a, a great businessman or a great businesswoman on their own. They may be outstanding, but they're always outstanding in part because they have built and know how to work with and use a great team. And I think that you know, if you go through companies that have done very well for long periods of time and also look at companies that have had disasters, you can very often put it down to the quality of the teamwork around the leader at the top of the firm. Nigel is a really humble guy and had such valuable advice to share. And I really enjoyed our conversation. The eighth episode saw wise CMO Sian as my guest, who is such a positive and entertaining leader. Here, Sian openly discusses how he accelerated in business, developed his teams and learned from his experiences. I think it's always terrifying to start a new job. I always try and start a new job where I feel like what I know and what I've done before should not be relevant. And what you bring to the table is not a playbook or a set of standard things you're going to just roll out, but you have to challenge your brain to take those experiences and use them on a new problem. So I always find new jobs terrifying because I'm like, 
I'm having to challenge my brain to like step up a gear and 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 solve this problem. And then you know that period is just about be, building belief both in yourself, get your team to believe in the mission, get your team to believe in you, get them to believe in themselves, and you get that through surrounding yourselves with sort of great. You have to like complement your leadership skill with leadership from other people and those people could be from anywhere in the organization like your boss someone who works for you and that's what i found at secret escapes was i could leverage the leadership um, across the organization which was 140 people probably in the sort of growing up analogy a spotty teenager so you know a lot of you know putting in the principles and frameworks and i think you know you need to bring a philosophy to the table again rather than the playbook but still had this amazing energy and, and vibe. And, you know, Tom's leadership was very clear as how he approached things, which was also just very inspirational and directional. And then you just go on this journey, right, for six years. And, you know, you sort of see it back as chapters of certain things you did and just the adventures you had. And at the heart of it, nothing really changed, I don't think, which is good. That core essence of what the business was about, how we made decisions and i guess the philosophy was was always constant it was just the scale was different and to manage scale you have to enable your team to make great decisions his level of self-awareness is really impressive to me and in this clip cn talks about his personal leadership journey and where he gets his energy from so my mind's brig is briggs is is FP, very I, uh, so very introverted, um, which I guess is probably why I, I like just curling up with a book. I think there's a great quote about reading that it's the, uh, the, the fruitful miracle of communication in the midst of solitude. And for like a six-year-old, it was, it was definitely that. And, you know, I was, like, like I said, de sort of deeply introverted. I, I really did not enjoy talking to people. I'd probably rather be able to talk to animals than people. So this leadership journey was a very, you know, explicit and difficult sort of growth period of me having to be, be extroverted in terms of, or traditionally extroverted in terms of standing in front of people, being confident in meetings. I found all those things I had to explicitly test myself, push myself to do. And it gets nowadays people are like, huh, you're an introvert. You're like the, you know, you're always out there. You're always talking to people. And I'm like, it is a deeply energy zapping thing for me to do uh, in terms of being able to stand up and, and be incredibly confident and give people that sense of belief. So that was a lot of what my journey was about in terms of my personal leadership. So it kind of answers both in terms of where I get energy and where I don't. I love um, my problem is I love solving difficult problems with smart people which gives me so much buzz i just love cracking cracking the code but you have to learn when to lead and when to do and i think that's the thing i'm 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 going on this sort of latter journey of making sure i enable people to do that themselves and come to me when they need uh, support as a final discussion point cian talked to me about what he envisages for his career and success in the future I like helping other people. I would love to be uh, having supported other businesses to grow in some sort of fashion. I just, I just love seeing really smart people either working for me or just getting to know them um, in terms of their journeys. 
Um, and I would just love to be part of their story in some way. In like 10 years, I might just be a bit old and creaky to be getting my hands dirty again. <laughs> um, but I can just see there are just such an amazing, I think of like these cohorts of people I've had the sort of privilege to have crossed paths with uh, throughout my career. And I just want to continue to do that um, going forward. I don't see myself as a personally as an entrepreneur myself to set up my own thing. But I feel like I bring, you know, some domain expertise and hopefully a bit of belief uh, that other people can uh, use. In episode nine, I had the huge pleasure of speaking with BGF executive chair and founder Stephen Welton. He is a city veteran and an ambassador for small businesses, but he's also an amateur magician in his spare time. He told me about his background, upbringing and influences. And in this clip, he discusses his transition from JP Morgan to establishing the now phenomenally successful British Growth Fund. JP Morgan is a phenomenal and very successful bank. So I went in as a partner when we were employees of the bank and then we had the opportunity to basically spin out that business into an independent entity that was owned by the partner so i was one of the owners i think there were there were eight owners seven americans and and one englishman so you can see where the balance of power in that particular um, <laughs> relationship uh, lay but that was a that was a tremendous opportunity to then be an owner of a significant private equity business that was investing on a global basis And I, together, one of my partners was responsible for looking after our activities in, in Europe, which from an American standpoint also included Africa uh, and Australasia. They tell them they're different parts of the world. So mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time traveling. It was very interesting. Again, I suppose going back to those early years, I've always been interested in travel, um, the opportunity to be investing uh, in places like Africa, Australia, uh, sort of Hong Kong. They, they were fascinating, South Korea. So I really did learn an enormous amount uh, from that. And I do think in your career, if you keep learning, then things remain interesting and you keep energized and you keep active. So I wasn't planning on a sort of change, as it were, from being an owner of a, of a private equity firm, because that's a great position to get into. But then, this is back in 2010, I was given effectively an opportunity to start something from scratch, which might or might not have worked but I thought was a really good moment in time uh, when there was a need in the economy for a different type of investment organization coming out of the financial crash that would be focused on providing growth capital to a broad range of companies across the, the UK. And when the opportunity, and this goes back to this point about, I guess, being lucky, when the opportunity presented itself um, to me, I could have analyzed that for a very long period of time, mm -hmm. um, but I followed my hunch. I mean, I had to make some, some big assumptions. Was there potentially a market gap in terms of the provision of equity finance to small growing companies in the UK? And my view, which remains true today, is there was, and it's not unique to the UK. So I ticked that box. Could you actually get the capital uh, in, in enough scale to give this um, a sporting chance of being successful? And the banks who are our shareholders were prepared to do that or indicating that they would be prepared to do that. Again, that's another judgment. Would they actually follow through? But there was enough intent on their part to give me the confidence that they might if it was done well. Could you then recruit a team 
to build a business from scratch? And ultimately, would there be any market demand? And there are so many huge imponderables in all of that. Any one of those would be reason not to have done this. But I think this is where you can overanalyze some things and you've got to follow your experience. So I understood this market, um, follow your hunch and then make it happen. And it was, uh, it, it was not something that I've been looking to do, but it's something I'm incredibly grateful that that opportunity presented itself and, and I grabbed it. And here we are 10 years later and have made what I would describe as a good start. Camilla Dolan was my guest in episode 10. She's a founding partner of Eka Ventures, as well as a passionate investor in consumer-led technology companies. Here, she tells me her thoughts on scaling businesses and how the board plays such an important role in achieving this. So at a very early stage, I think the board is, re is really there as a sort of founder sounding board and to sort of help with some of the both strategic and tactical decisions, but it's generally quite informal and is very much there to help the founder think about like what the next sort of three to six months looks like. As the business starts to scale, I think you start to get a very different dynamic come through where there's much more need for those boards to be um, structured. So great quality board materials, um, often pre-reads, often um, founder discussions with board members before to make sure there's a high alignment and then a focus all on one or two points of discussion on that board and less focus on sort of reporting, which you definitely can see in some boards there's like limited strategic discussion there's lots of discussion about the sort of numbers which especially as you're starting to scale i think becomes less less helpful from a board perspective and then as you were saying the sort of stage you're going through at the moment i think there is is a point where boards can end up with too many investor directors on the board and that really detracts from the sort of board's role as being a sort of strategic function and also sort of holding holding the sort of founders to account but without having an agenda that might not be always 100% aligned with what's best for the sort of company at that point in time. As with all my guests, Camilla's self-awareness and desire to learn and improve constantly is really, really inspiring. In this clip, she talks about what self-improvement looks like for her. A, a few of the, I guess, the sort of key takeaways I've, I've taken about myself is that I really enjoy working in a very independent and autonomous fashion, which works really well in a venture context, but probably would work much less well in an environment where you were building a big team. And so, you know, I think I spent some time considering whether to be an operator or to stay in venture and realized uh, that my skill set was definitely suited towards sort of investing rather than operating. I think a second really big thing that I've learned about myself that I have to spend a lot of time all the time trying to improve and get better at is to be constantly open-minded. So I would never forget uh, when I sort of sat in a room um, with a whole load of people talking about Uber um, we were doing a strategy session with them. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, like why would anyone invest in a business, in a taxi business? Like that just makes no sense <laughs> to me. Um, and I always remember that. So every time I think something is really stupid, I just have to remind myself that someone has a unique perspective um, and there's a reason they have that perspective and try to understand what that perspective is and sort of look through the lenses of how big that could be, taking into account uh, that perspective. So that's that open mindedness is something I like work on all of the time. <laughs> 
She also talks in this next clip about what motivates her. Yeah, so I, so it's probably less about um, sort of independence or like um, all of the time. It's definitely around like an ability to manage a large large team. So as a team, we're like a very close knit team, and we have super strict OKRs. We speak to each other every day and have an ongoing sort of feedback loop that makes sure that we try to improve sort of continuously. But I think in terms of motivation, it's really around working with incredible founders and trying to help and empower them on a journey to like achieve things that really don't feel possible at the start of that journey. And that's really why I get out of bed every morning. Like I just love working and learning from some of the founders that we're working with. I think we're co-investors together on um, Sourceful. But, you know, every time I sort of have a call from one of their founders, I'm like, wow, that's just such a unique unique insight or something so interesting. I need to go away and sort of think about it. And the potential that those businesses have to totally change how the world operates in the future is just, yeah, keeps me motivated all the time. Camilla is a driven and very down-to-earth individual. And our conversation was really, really fascinating. John and John, founding partners of Craft Gin Club, were my guests in episode 11. They have fully embraced the power of content marketing and crafted the UK's number one gym subscription service. In this clip, John tells me the moment he realized Craft Gin Club could be a viable business idea. I remember the proof of life moment, if you like, was uh, talking about things that, that stretch the boundaries of what's legal and what's not. I remember John putting together a, a Facebook post. Uh, it was something like 13 reasons that, that gin makes the perfect New Year's detox. And we went up online sort of January the, the 2nd or whatever it was. Uh, advertising standards, you're not supposed to, uh, <laughs> to associate drinking gin with any health benefits. But but we, we were sort of, you know, a bit naive back then. But this post went viral. Uh, I think it was seen by oh, almost yeah. almost two million people wow. on Facebook, and and we ten x our subscriber base. Wow! Yeah, off the back off the back, post, off the yeah. back of that, yeah, post that John probably knocked up in. Well, might be being unkind to you, John, but ten fifteen yeah. minutes, uh, <laughs> and away it went. And we we knew we knew then we got some kind of product market fit. You know, if we could just get out and, and get our, our brand and and our voice in front of enough people, uh, they would sign up. So it was a real. It was a real launching moment. That. Now that they have accomplished substantial growth, they have so many amazing ideas for how to further develop their business, as well as what the future might hold for them. So we're very excited about what the future might hold. We think there's lots of growth left in the UK market for gin subscription, but also some of the other things that we're building on behind that. So we launched our e-commerce store last year and that's growing really nicely. It's now sort of 15% of our revenues. Nice. We bringing some of our own products to market. So MPD is forming an increasing part of that mix. Uh, we have an, uh, an event tonight. We have almost 2000 people signed up for an online gin tasting event wow. uh, tonight at, you know, 25 pounds a ticket or whatever it is. So uh, we think there's lots more to, to do in gin and, and there's still lots, importantly, lots and lots of really passionate and talented distillers out there that we've, we've yet to work with. So that's, that's the thing that keeps us, keeps us motivated. John? Yeah, the what really excites me actually is the at least in the UK for the minute. Um, you know, we've always talked about 
testing that, how, how it will work abroad too. That's, a, that's another issue. But what excites me mostly is working with the small businesses that we work with, because we are building a platform uh, for these small distilleries to get their name out there and to get their gin in, in front of, um, well, in, into the homes of, you know, hundred, hundred thousand people and tasted by four people per bottle will taste that. So you can get your gin tasted by, uh, almost half a million people in one month, which for a small producer who might make 15, 20,000 bottles a year is, uh, an incredible opportunity and everything that we build as a company um what john was just talking about the uh, events uh, which is just a natural evolution of um of, of having a content-driven business events are, are a big part of that and the e-commerce store and and other ideas that we have in mind to develop in the uk the family of distillers that we have been building over the past few years are along for the ride in that and it it is such a busy market now that to a certain degree, you could say that Craft Gin Club is building its brand and can become somewhat of an umbrella brand for all of these smaller businesses. And the way that we position ourselves is as a um, the best curator of top quality spirits, and uh, so which means we're working with the best and most talented distillers. And we do a lot of work behind the scenes to find those distillers. A lot of tasting goes on. So uh, it's, a, it's a tough job. It's, it's one of the toughest parts of the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, weekly gin tastings. Uh, but we, because the market is so busy and we're trying to find the best, uh, most ambitious and most talented distillers uh, that are out there running these small businesses, we, we want them to grow with us uh, and to be able to take advantage of the brand name we're building. So for instance, we have television advertisements with uh, uh, with a, a celebrity brand ambassador. And, and if you're a small business uh, and you can piggyback off of that sort of exposure, it's mm. it's an amazing opportunity. So uh, yeah, that that's what excites me the most about uh, the company is, is not just building our own company, but helping other people build their company. Their ambition to not only ensure success for their own company, but for others too, is really inspirational. My final guest in this series was Gusto CMO Tom Wallace. In this clip, Tom talks about his methods for growing a fantastic team and how he successfully managed that at Gusto. Sort of bit by bit, bringing people in with experience. And, and it's, a, it's something that you know, I don't do anymore and, and probably don't want to do anymore, but I kind of got really hands-on. I sat down with people. I did stuff myself, you know, got back into the weeds, showed people what good looked like or could be. Uh, I think, you know, describe it as the pace setters type style. And I knew everything down to the, you know, the bottom you know, channel and the, the last kind of tactic so that I could get it moving, get it going, and then sort of hand on the bat and say, look, keep it going like this, keep it spinning this way. And that's my style. I, I like to I like to know the detail and then sort of hand it over, rise out of it, and then wait for that moment when the person who's taken it on exceeds my expectations. And I go, wow, I, I would never have thought of that myself. And that's amazing that you've taken it beyond where I thought I could even get it. So yeah, just getting into the detail, finding people who were really ambitious, really driven, um, that's much more important than... The, I guess the experience because 
with marketing, especially performance marketing, you can learn it really quickly. You can teach yourself. So yes, getting people who had the drive uh, was the most important thing. He then goes on to offer his amazing insight into creating a collaborative and productive culture. It starts with hiring, of course. So bringing in people that match our sort of cultural principles, our ownership principles, which we do you know, quite well, I think. You know, everybody, you know, 95% of the people that join say when they arrive, it's exactly like how you said it would be. It really is true. It's not just words on a wall. It's people really are like this. And the collaboration is really, really important. And the way I describe that is that when people learn something really interesting and, and powerful about customers or, or, or anything to do with uh, what we're doing, they can't wait to share it and see how it can benefit other people and so on. So they're really, really kind of open and sharing. And, and for me, uh, in terms of creating culture beyond just sort of finding the right people, role modeling, of course, is important. I love knowing everybody on the team all the way down. And as we get bigger, uh, it's it's more difficult. And of course, as we're remote, it's more difficult. But it, it was really, really important to me, you know, spending time with everybody at all levels so they could see the ownership principles in action. They can look around and observe and and recognize recognize them in everybody. So absolutely, me kind of spending time with everyone was was one of the things that I did and, and one of the things that I'm struggling with actually a little bit in the in the remoteness that we've had over the last year is how do you how do you ensure that you keep that culture going when you don't have all those little micro moments um, at someone's desk or you know over a coffee etc interesting maybe to, to an, another another day to think about how that can be how that can be done but it's a big topic and one that will become really important as we start to go back in in some kind of mixed mode and all the different companies around the UK and the world are you know, grappling with this this topic finally Tom talks about what energizes him every single day every day I'm energized by uh, what we're doing and that's a real blessing and there's you know all other the other jobs that I've had, it would be probably 25% of the days I'd be like, oh, I don't fancy it today. But today it really is. And the things that energize me are, it's just a really interesting product. Interesting, not just to me, but to you know, most of the country because food is, is something that everybody loves. So that's, you know, getting reactions from people when you talk about it, that's really energizing. Coming in, working with great people is extremely energizing. You know, I know that Pretty much every conversation conversation I'm going to have in a given day, I'm going to learn something. It's going to be interesting. I'm going to have a great interaction on those things I find very, very energizing. And just building something, you know, build, building something that has got such a, a great future ahead of it. And, you know, for us being inside the business and seeing what's going on to go, hang on, this is, this is really working. And there's lots of opportunity here. It's a really great vantage point as well, isn't it? <laughs> I've had huge fun and learned so much throughout this entire series. I can't wait to speak with more inspirational, talented, passionate leaders in the next series of Bold Flavors, which will be back very soon.